Hi, I'm Ruthie Shah, and this is my podcast, Have You Thought About? I'm a writer, a journalist, and a poet, and I love to find out about what passions people are pursuing, especially if they manage to blend together skills in unusual ways. In each edition, I'm going to chat with someone I find particularly interesting and who's managed to fit things together in their life or profession that you just might not think of as an obvious match. You're about to hear me chatting with Jackie Heffley, a climber, a writer and a businesswoman. I started by asking her to explain just how she got into climbing in the first place. Jackie, we've known each other quite a little while and we met when I was working in Colorado on some animal stories. So I'm never going to forget that you picked me up and you had this huge truck and you introduced me to the first Malamut I've ever seen in real life. And you also showed me some really amazing climbing tech. So it made me go, actually, what's this climbing stuff really all about? Can I find out a little bit more about how you got into climbing? Yeah. So I just want to speak to really quick, the, the huge truck. My truck is not that big for America. It just looks big to you. It's actually a smaller truck for here. It was but, big. Yeah. Tell me like I it, had to literally lift myself up onto like this little step thing, but I am quite short. So I will give you that caveat. And they give you a handle. So that helps, you know, to, to pull you in. I grew up in, in Reno, Northern Nevada, and it's near Lake Tahoe and there's a fair amount of rock there. So there actually was a climbing scene in Reno, even back in the 90s. And one of my mom's friends started taking my brother, and my mom climbing. I didn't want to go because I was like, you know, early high school age when you just don't want to do anything besides hang out with your friends. But I eventually got talked into going and I just fell in love with it. So I started going climbing in the gym all the time, working in the climbing gym, going outside. Friends from high school and I would go climbing after class. And I started also working in the climbing gym. So putting the climbing holds on the walls to create what's called roots. It's called root setting courses that you would follow if you go to the gym. And then also, you know, I competed and then I coached. So it kind of just did all the things related to climbing. It's quite a bit of lingo. You're talking about the root setting, but how do you learn all the climbing lingo? Is it purely being immersed in it? Have you been involved in creating climbing lingo? Because you are a trendsetter with the climbing from what I understand. That's nice of you to say. Uh, I've been doing it since 1998. So that's sort of a long time at this point in climbing. Uh, well over half my life. Um, well, yeah, well over half my life. Some of the lingo that you get in climbing, very common lingo are things like crux, which means the hard part. Uh, root, a climb is referred to as a root. So you might look and say, oh, I want to climb this rock. And we would say, well, this rock has three different roots on it, three different paths you could take. And then if it's a short rock, you would call it a boulder problem. So you'd say this rock has one or two or three boulder problems on it. So there's all these different kind of categories of root and then route setting or route setting is when you design a climb and so it's like the way that you would choreograph a dance you can set holds plastic climbing holds so that's another bit of lingo um people often refer to them as grips or grabs but it's just these sculpted shapes that are made in plastic so they can be bolted to a climbing wall and then you can grab them and pull on them and they're all different types and that's another thing we'll talk about later. Um, my business now is that we make those. Oh, it's kind of both. Yeah. So root setting is where you take the plastic grips and you design climbs where you think about what the movement's going to be, just the way you think about it in a dance. Or if you were like a bike park designer where you would create a bunch of jumps and expect like a certain path that bikers would take. So for climbing, we create a certain path that we expect the climbers to take up a wall. And so when I was younger, I climbed a lot and I competed in, you know, junior competitions. So People would set those climbs for us and we'd all try them and whoever got the highest would win. And basically is how it works. 
Now it's in the Olympics, so a lot, of, a lot of people are more familiar with what that looks like. But back in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was a lot different when I was competing. And I transitioned from that into becoming the person that puts the climbs on the wall for competitions and for like a climbing gym. So if you were to go into a climbing gym, um, you'll see there's like tons of colored climbs all over the place. And you could just climb, you could use all the holds, or you could be like, I'm only going to use the red holds or whatever color you choose. And that is a specific course that somebody actually designed for you to climb, which is kind of crazy because there's millions of them all over the world, millions of, of climbs that are up in the, you know, thousands of climbing gyms and they get changed all the time. So it's just this ephemeral art form where it comes and goes. So it comes, you use it, it goes. And right now it's actually, you know, I might set some climbs in a gym and then take them down in six weeks. And then that same climb will never exist ever again. So there's limitless number of movements you could do in climbing because small adjustments to the climbing holds change what moves you're doing. So you can get real nerdy about it. And another factor is what the plastic grips are. So, you know, if every hold, every grip was the same, it would just be like, you wouldn't have to think about how to hold it or what to do because you would have the expectation of what the hold would feel like in your hand. And you would know what you could do with that hold. But with climbing holds, again, there's thousands and thousands of different shapes. My company alone makes over 7,000 climbing hold shapes. They're all a little different. So then as a root setter, you have to know the different shapes and understand how to use those shapes to help guide your climbers into the movements you want them to do. It can get very specific. <laughs> so you've already given us that have you thought about in terms of the art of it, the trail can be there for like a couple of weeks and then that's it, it's gone. It's something I've never thought about because it's like when I see pictures or you know having gone near a climbing wall or a, bo a boulder wall is that what it is like you're like oh I always thought they were there permanently but that's not what you're saying that actually there's a lot of movement involved so yeah thank you for that have you thought about because I hadn't thought about that at all and it's good to get a plug-in for your business and it's kilter grips right yeah it's called so it's called kilter grips my partner Ian had another company in the early um 90s that he then sold so that company still exists as well but kilter is our company now we've been going for about 10 years we make a product called a kilter board and what that is is it's a climbing wall but the holds are they don't get moved all the time so we set them up and we we test them for like a year and then we make a map so there's a specific layout of climbing holds that are specific angles and they're all numbered. So you know which hold goes where and you have a map and the map's actually in an app. Then anybody in the world that has one of these boards and there's uh, probably over a thousand of them now in the world, all over the world can open the app and they can choose a climb from the app. So there's 86,000 climbs in the app or they can add their own climb. And so this way, the climbs don't just go up and then disappear in six weeks. This way, if I set a climb, it's accessible forever on these boards. And also, if I go to Thailand or Singapore, any of these countries, I can go find a kilter board and climb on it. So I can do my same workout if I want to, or I can, you know, climb on the kilter board and then climb in the gym. Like, it just gives you this flexibility to have a routine, to feel that sense of familiarity anywhere you are in the world, and also to set climbs that you can test yourself on over time to track your own progress kind of see where you're at, learn skills that you're bad at, etc. Climbing and tech, like, it's also something I hadn't actually considered to, to work together, but that's what you actually work in. It's climbing and tech as well. So that's pretty cool. And not just that, having seen Kilterboard up face-to-face -face, when we first met in Colorado, there's art. So it feels like climbing, especially maybe for you climbing geeks, climbing nerds, it's not just about getting up on a rock and being like, right, that's it now, get in with your... I don't know, your rock sniffing, I don't know what you could do it. <laughs> but it's it's actually quite it's it's quite immersive and quite an immersive experience. Is is that fair to say? 
Yeah, I think so. Because climbing is a pretty natural, intuitive thing to do. Like you, even yourself, when you first climbed, you told me you climbed right to the top of the thing you were put onto. And then you regretted being up there, but you did climb straight up it. And that's not an <laughs> uncommon experience to have. I'm going to interrupt for um, one second. Yes. Yeah, so I was in Laos and I was with a climber, a professional, well, semi-professional. Um, anyway, he knew what he was doing. Let's face it. If anybody knows me, if you don't know me, I am the most clumsiest person on earth. I'm glad that an attempt was made to make me try something. And yes, I went very much up a, a sort of a, felt like a cliff face wall. Unfortunately, I also never know how to get down places. I'm very good at going up places, you know, breaking through glass ceilings, breaking through any sort of ceilings. I just don't know how to slide back down. But it was an interesting experience. I'll give you that. I'm glad that I did it. With you, you didn't just have that one-off experience. You know, you're going back to your teenage years. You went back again and again and again. And not just that. Again, because a lot of people do climbing as a hobby. It's something to let let them, you know, have some release. Um, that's all completely understandable. But this is really your world. You know, people do do it as a hobby. They do it to release. Some people just do it for fitness. And so in a climbing gym, you have, you know, hundreds of climbs in any given climbing gym where you have design climbs for every level of climber that comes to the gym to be able to, uh, it's called warming up. So do the first easier climbs to get your body moving and then to climb on to do things that are more challenging for you. And then even things that are really challenging for you, you would call it projecting. That's when you project a climb that's harder than your ability. So you want to be able to warm up, climb, and you might want to project in any given session. And because there's such a range of abilities, you want people to have those climbs available to them no matter their ability, which means that the root setters at the gym have to plan for all those people coming in. So if you come in as your first time, I want there to be things that are fun for you to do that you look at and you're like, I want to grab that. I want to try that. And you can, and you have a good time. But if somebody has been climbing for 20 years, they can come in and find things that are exactly what they want to do to train for whatever project they're training for, to get the workout they're looking for, whatever it is. So it's actually a very complex job, even though climbing itself is a really intuitive activity. Um, and then to go back to the kilter board, another thing that we did with the board is the holds light up and they light up all the way around. So if you look at the wall, you can light up a climb and you see the lights and it makes it very obvious what you should be doing, which is grabbing the lit up holds. And so we tried to make it more intuitive for people to experience climbing on a wall, because a lot of times if you go to a climbing gym, you might say, oh, I want to climb up that, but you won't really understand. I just have to grab the red holds or I just have to grab the purple holds or which one is a purple hold? So when the holds light up on the kilter board, it makes it very obvious kind of what you're supposed to do. And you can also change the angle of the wall so you can make the angle something you're comfortable with or something that's uncomfortable for you if you want to try the same movement, even at different angles. So you really can get into really specifics of movement. Okay, how, if I make the wall five degrees steeper, 10 degrees steeper, how does this movement change? And so you can, again, you can really nerd out on all these different aspects of climbing and movement, which is why there are a lot of people in climbing who are really smart in other areas because they find it a workout that they can stay interested and engaged in over time. It's like really gives you a lot of room to use your mind as well as your body, um, sort of like vertical yoga to, to create a practice. So older climbers that have good technique and are good at climbing can do harder climbs than younger climbers that might be stronger but aren't as good at, good at climbing. The person that I went climbing with, one of the things that really stood out, and I was like, this is quite interesting, is it was, seemed like quite a visceral experience for them. So they would talk about the scent of that which they were sort of climbing. And they were more an outdoors climber, I think, from, from what they were saying. And bearing in mind, from what you're saying, go back to that element of that, have you thought about, it is an experience like it does involve every element of your of your sense and it does evoke memories 
So again, that's something I hadn't considered before. But the other thing I wanted to sort of bring in with you, because you don't just do climbing, like you, you clearly do it and you do it a lot. But one of the other commonalities that you and I have, and I think why we've spoken quite a bit over the past few years, is that you also write about it. You also you know do a, de- a degree of deconstruction. I also like you because I actually think you're an ally when it comes to bringing climbing in and making it a lot more inclusive. So I just want to sort of step aside for a second and just talk a little bit more about the writing and that is also one of your passions. Can you explain more about like how that makes Jackie Jackie? <laughs> how does it make Jackie Jackie? I've been an avid reader my whole life, like so many of us that end up writing as adults. So when you read a lot, you just get a sense for how things should be on paper. And so then you become kind of pedantic and you also think you enjoy editing. And then you also enjoy explaining things in a way that you think they make sense, which means you want to write them down. So you end up writing I actually really like creative writing though. Um, so I read a, I read for escapism a lot of the time. You know, I don't read that much nonfiction because I'm so busy all the time with work and I feel like the world is, you know, pretty scary and exhausting. So I, I tend to read for escapism. And so I also like to write uh, personal, working on some book projects and stuff like that that are kind of long-term just for fun. Um, but I also, you know, especially when I was younger and I was root setting for my only job, it wasn't really a good profession yet. It's becoming one now. Um, and so I was working in the climbing gym and setting routes. And then I was also writing for climbing magazines and for climbing websites. And so I would just, because I paid so much attention to climbing, it was pretty easy for me to translate that into articles about climbing. And, you know, I, I did um, several seasons of in-depth analysis of the World Cup climbing circuit where I would watch the comps and explain the movement on, I had a blog and we did a podcast at, for a couple seasons, but we, I did a blog also where I would analyze uh, the events and try to explain them. Like you were saying, I try to get more people into climbing. And I was really honored because one of the world cup athletes after a couple of years, she's like, Oh yeah, my parents read your blog so they can understand what's going on in these comps. Going back to that creative writing, you studied it. What is it that you return to again and again? This really stood out for me when I was a kid. I, you know, for me, it's white fang. You, know, you and I have spoken that bit about that before. And white fang is this book by Jack London. And it's about this wolf dog that is having a coming of age season because clearly that's what I'm like um but for you what is it that you're like you know what this is what I go back to for comfort or this is something that I really want people to know about because this is an amazing piece of writing and I would always return to it whatever happens in my life I don't tend to be a person that reads over and over and over the same book when I was younger I had a really good memory for books so I could read a book and then I could open the book to find like a specific sentence or section pretty quickly pretty easily and pretty consistently now that I run a small business and I've been running a small business for 10 years, that ability is gone because I don't have room in my mind anymore for that. And I also think also smartphones and everything, you just need the constant influx of things to do. It definitely affects your ability to remember as clearly. But there's definitely, despite that, there's things that really stand out for me. Um, when I was really little, I really loved Go Dog Go, the kid's book. It's a little kid's book. I get it for my friends that have babies because I love it so much. And it's about these dogs and they are driving cars and they end up having to party in a tree with their dog car. It's just like super fun little book. I so it. I, so part of me, like, I love that sing songy kids book with the like short rhyming, but like not stupid. I think that that's good for kids. And so I, so one thing I really enjoy are, you know, little kids books. And also I want to write some little kids books. I have a couple that I've sort of written, but I haven't done anything with. And then personally, like, I guess that I read for escapism, but I really 
I do really enjoy um, certain writers who are kind of very dry and on, and so far, unfortunately, tend to be male, but like Ernest Hemingway, a couple of Edward Abbey books that I really like. So he's an American Western writer. Hemingway I like because I feel like it's very clean writing. And I feel like if I've been reading some crap, I can read Hemingway and it kind of cleans my brain a little bit. It makes me more able to like return to the voice I want to speak in when I write, which is not anything like Hemingway's voice, but it just removes bad habits, I feel like. Because, you know, especially now that there's so much written work available online that's barely edited, if at all, you know, you're susceptible to reading garbage or really poorly edited, poorly constructed, do the work to try to clean up your your work. Because, you know, when you're writing a long book or like I'm working on a couple different book series is like my sort of hobby. Although again, I haven't worked on them that much lately because I run a small business and who has time to sit in front of the computer after sitting in front of the computer all day. But, you know, that's one of the things I'm really trying to do is continue to go back through them. And then I'm sure when I actually show them to somebody else who's an editor, they're going to tear the whole thing apart some more. But I think it's necessary to try to get the kind of writing that is like, useful to read which there's all kinds of books that are enjoyable but I feel strongly that the ones I get the most out of are the ones where you can tell the person did did the work for the work because I don't think any of us as much as we read a lot and much as we may have talent at writing or not I don't know if any of us produce perfect work like right off the bat and so it's an important process to go through and self-publishing really kind of helps you avoid that process as well, but I don't think it's to the benefit of the work. I mean, Twilight is an example, and the Fifty Shades of Grey is an example of, it's Twilight fan fiction. It was self-published. Like, I don't think anybody would argue those are good. You might like reading them, but you can't argue that they're good books. They're awful. They're just awful. I think like, they're, they're mainly in the charity. My understanding is that they play, um, there's a significant number of them that end up in, in, in the charity shops. But, you know, I guess each to their own, I will definitely say that I ended up reading both purely because everybody else is reading them. So it's more like, what is all this fuss about? And sometimes yeah. I actually don't enjoy doing that. Like I like to read things just for the sake of this it comes to comes to me at the right time in my life. Do you do the same thing? Like if everyone else is going on about something, you read it and then be like, oh, why did I slightly regret that? Or do you go, do you know what? Screw this. Yes. I'm just going to move. Yeah, no, I, I often don't read things that people really push for because... And not that I think I'm, I'm just, maybe I have different tastes than a lot of people, but a lot of times when I have reading something that's very popular, I don't like it. That's not always like, there's some things that are very popular that I really, really do enjoy reading, but there's some authors that just don't really speak to me that apparently do speak to other people. And that's great. I don't, you know, begrudge them that. And I'm sure that there's stuff I like that other people hate. So I would say if I'm reading something that's like, everybody loves this and it's so popular, the chances of me being like, this is the most fantastic thing I've ever read or really small usually and that is um, why we get on because <laughs> i think we're yeah. very similar in that one of the things that we do is uh, every so often you'll just message me a wonderful gift and it, we're often very animal related and that's something that we have in common here so tell me more about your love of animals like where does that come from what's that about no i think it's because i was like a pretty anxious kid like i had friends and i just always was more comfortable being outside so i just like being outside and i just always liked animals and so i always would want to try to you know, went over whatever animal was nearby, basically. So I just always loved animals growing up. And I think it's common nowadays. So I think a lot of people really like animals because they're just a neutral animal videos are kind of a neutral way to have a, a quick little foot warm fuzzy, you know, because everybody appreciates, almost everybody appreciates animals, especially cute animals. And so you can send almost anybody any cute animal gif and they'll 
I'm cats are more controversial, but like, say you send somebody a cute otter video, most people will be like, Oh, look at that little otter. Like there's the otter getting his temperature taken and he looks very concerned. And it's just like, it just hits that thing inside you. That's like, that's so cute. I can't handle it. And I think that, you know, in this time when we're all so busy and overwhelmed, little bits of escapism like that are comforting. So as a kid, finding the animals nearby and hanging out with them was more enjoyable to me than maybe hanging out with people. And as an adult, I think like most of us, you know, we just need things to try to get away for a second. And so when I see certain little animal memes, I think of you specifically. So I send them to you, you know, because I'm like, oh, this journey like this. And this will make, you know, maybe make you smile or just give you like a quick little warm fuzzy, which is what it's for. Because, you, you know, I want you to have a good moment and I want to have good moments and we're all we're all overworked. And so it's just and plus, like, I think it's important to remember that this world is a lot bigger than just the people on it. And that was the wonderful Jackie Hefley, who brings together climbing, business and more. Do you have an interdisciplinary life? I'd love to hear from you. And maybe we can chat on this podcast that goes with my newsletter, which is called Have You Thought About? It can be found by www.drutyshard.com. Please join me next time for a fun conversation with another guest who likes to mix up a lot of things in their life too. Thank you to Rian Shah for the music for this podcast. <laughs>